y'all? How y'all doing? Fantastic. Happy Father's Day. And today we're just celebrating fathers and, and just men. So if you're a man, thank you so much for being a man. And that's all I got to say about that. All right, cool. By the way, somebody has lost some keys. And I know right now you're panicking because you think I'm going to call you up here. And I'm not, all right? But here's what I am going to do is I'm going to put these right here on the stage and then afterwards, before we dismiss, if you guys could just stick around and watch to see who comes and gets them, it'll be great. All right, cool. Um, quick question, and this is kind of a weird transition, but hang out with me just for a sec. How many of y'all believe that by eating carrots, it improves your eyesight? Let me see your hands. Cool. I, I, I grew up believing that. Got some wonderful carrots up on the screen here. How many of y'all like carrots? All right, not a lot of you guys. All right, some of you. All right. Well, here's what's interesting. Did you know that that is a lie? That is a lie. As you know, we're in this series called Not Actually Jesus, and we're debunking lies. And this is just one of those lies that your mama told you so that you would eat your carrots, right? And as I was digging through, kind of trying to figure out the reason behind this lie about if you eat carrots, it improves your eyesight, did you know that that myth got its origins back in World War II? Uh, it was in the British Royal Air Force. Um, they started perpetrating that lie, and here's the reason. They had invented some technology that no one else had at the time, and they called it this, airborne interception radar. And they finally was able to get radar on planes, and no other, no other time, no other culture had been able to figure that out. But the Brits in the Royal Air Force, they actually figured out how to get radar into planes. And uh, as the German Nazi uh, bombers and, uh, and, and spitfires, all these people were coming over, they would actually go and they would just knock them out of the sky. And the Germans are kind of left scratching their head. How come these people are such good aims? And they didn't want anybody to know that they had radar. So they per perpetrated a lie that they fed their pilots carrots so that that improved their eyesight. In fact, there was this uh, whole eat more carrots campaign in England to improve your vision. And uh, a guy, they had an English pilot named John Cunningham. His nickname was Cat Eyes because he was really good at shooting down German planes, right? And, and they had these huge publicity stunts that said, you know, eat more carrots and it'll improve your eyesight. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> now, you know, everybody know, everybody has radar and this lie has continued going on, right? Nobody said, okay, let's pull the plug on the lie. And it's just kind of snowballed into mamas and daddies, number one, not letting your babies grow up to be cowboys. But secondly, Making your kid, thank you, mom. Thanks for getting that. And, um, and, and secondly, trying to get your kid to eat some carrots, right? I mean, because it's bunk, it's a myth. Carrots don't do anything to improve your eyesight. Well, here's the thing just as there's some true physical lies that we've been talking about, like carrots, there's some lies spiritually that we're debunking in this series entitled Not Actually Jesus. The first week we talked about, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're. Thank you, all right? Again, all skate morning, all right? It doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you really believe it, as long as you're sincere. And we talked about from the Bible that that's not quite right. In fact, you can be sincere in your beliefs, but you can be sincerely wrong. 
Now, here's the thing. Last week, we talked about the whole idea that sin has sizes. And we talked about what the Bible has to say about what is the one sin that God cannot forgive us for. And again, if you missed that, you need to go back and listen to the podcast or download the app. Uh, Really, really good. I really enjoyed that. Today, we're talking about this myth, and it's the myth that God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. In fact, did you know that 80% of people who go to church believe that's in the Bible? Now, quick shocker, it's not in the Bible. It's not. In fact, as I was kind of digging around, I'm trying to figure out where is the origin of that? Where did that come from? And I believe the farthest back I've been able to kind of trace it is through Aesop's fables. In fact, Aesop's fables, y'all remember, you know, the, like the tortoise and the hare and the fox and all that stuff? Okay, cool. Um, this is what uh, it says in Aesop's fables. The gods help them who help themselves. This phrase can also be found in a, with a Greek scholar and philosopher, philosopher named Euripides. And he says this 2,500 years ago, try thyself first, then try God. In other words, do everything that you can, and if that doesn't work, then turn to God. George Herbert, who was an Episcopalian Anglican pastor back in the 17th century, wrote this. Um, thyself help, and thy God will help thee. Or in the words of Yoda, thyself thy help. Anyway, all right. And then the most recent one is Benjamin Franklin. In fact, it was Benjamin Franklin that said what we say now, that God helps those who help themselves. In fact, Benjamin Franklin wasn't a Christian. Um, He wasn't really a believer. He was a deist. And the best way I can explain that is he believed in a God, but he didn't believe in a God that was really involved in human affairs. In fact, some people say it like this. Deists believe it's like a watchmaker. When a watchmaker creates a watch, and once he creates a watch, he sends the watch away, right? And then somebody gets bought, and he's no longer involved in the watch anymore. And that's kind of how God is. God gets the earth spinning, and he creates everything, and then he walks away, and he says, let's see how far this is going to go until it topples. And that's what Deists believe. He wasn't a Christian, uh, Benjamin Franklin. So, now, here's the thing. Again, if you were to ask human beings today... And this is where the tension comes when it comes to the Bible and believing that is this in the Bible, is this is not in the Bible. If we got rid of this idea that God helps those who help themselves, it would leave us in a very different place because there's an instinct inside me and there's an instinct inside you of self-preservation. The question that most of us, we really ask in life is this, what's in it for me? Think about that. What's in it for me? At the end of the day, when you look at our motivation as human beings, we're all about this question. What's in it for me? We're all wired for self-preservation. We're all wired for self-interest. We are all wired as being selfish human beings. In fact, if you don't believe me, have a child. Right? Because they don't care that you ain't got any sleep. They're going to scream because they're hungry. Right? And then after you feed them, they're going to scream because they got gas. Right, and then after they got relieved the gas, they're going to scream because they're selfish. Right? It just it just what it is, and we have this idea as human beings that if I don't look up, look out for myself, then who else is going to look out for me? I got to look out for number one. But here's the kickback on that. Even though all of us, we're kind of in it for ourselves, right? And we've got to watch out for number one. We don't want to be taken advantage of. How many of y'all want to be taken advantage of? Look around. That's no one, right? I totally understand that. I don't either. But here's this thing. Here's the pushback on this. That as a life rule, 
the way this breaks down so severely is this, that the people that you admire the most in life are not the selfish people, right? The people that you admire the most that you want to be like in, in, in this world aren't the people who are out to get their own and to get their stuff, and, and they're not the number one person in their life. We have a tendency to admire people who are self-sacrificing. We have a tendency to admire people who are willing to lay down their lives. That's who we have a tendency to admire. It's not the people, hey, what's in it for me? Um, But so many of us, our pushback is, even though we admire people like that, they're kind of like, yeah, I would kind of be like that, but I don't want to be taken advantage of. I, I I don't want to be taken advantage of. It's about me. It's about me, me, and my rules, my purpose, my house, my car, my stuff, my time, my money, me, my, me, my, and we're all me monsters. I want to show you a clip of one of my favorite comedians in the world. His name is Brian Regan, and he's talking about the me monster. Y'all look at this. What is it about the human condition? People get something out of that. That's why I have a social fantasy. I wish I was one of the 12 astronauts who have been on our moon. They must love knowing they can beat anybody's story whenever they want. They can sit back quietly at a dinner party while some other person, some me monster, is doing his thing and let him go. Let him run with the line while you be quiet. Oh, really? <laughs> let him have his moment. Yeah, I'm a big traveler. I have my business. I got my own global enterprise. I got to check on, you know, driving in the Autobahn because I keep a fleet of sports cars over in Zurich and I get a Swiss account that I want to check out. Mount Kilimanjaro expedition might have to cancel that. You know, runways on Aspen are a lot shorter the first time you go in there. You know, you know the Pacific Rim Company, we're going to try to take that over. And blah, blah, blah. No, 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 it's a global enterprise. No, 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 no. I walked on the moon. (laughs) Well, you have the floor, moonwalker. (laughs) You know, you mentioned driving on the Autobahn. That reminded me. Once I was driving in the sea of tranquility. (laughs) In my lunar rover. And I, too, was worried about our speed till I remembered, wait, we're the only ones on the moon. <laughs> I love that. Have you, I mean, do you like being around me monsters? Have you ever went to a party? Have you ever went to a gathering? And you have conversations with people exactly what Brian was talking about. It's all about themselves, and they're all in it for themselves. And it's me, me, my, my. And they are the center of the world. They're the center of attention. They feel like when they come into a room, a spotlight comes on them. Do you admire people like that? No, not at all. No one likes me monsters. We don't admire me monsters. In fact, we admire people who do just the opposite. We admire people who are generous with their time. We admire people who are generous with their money. We admire people who aren't selfish. We admire people who put others' needs before their own. Those are the people that we acknowledge and that we praise, not the me monsters. But the tension that you and I have today is this. As much as we admire that quality and other people, there's a part of me that resists that inside of me. So what I admire most about other people 
is what I resist in my own life because if I'm driving down the road and I see somebody on the side of the road who needs help, if I stop, it's going to cost me. It's going to cost me my time. It's going to cost me uh, a, a meeting. It's going to cost me me getting involved. It may cost me some money. And that cost is always about my interest, not the interest of others. So the teaching of the myth that God helps those who help themselves really gets us into the tension of looking after ourselves, I'm number one, or looking after other people. So what does the Bible have to say about this myth? about this idea that God helps those who help themselves. Well, Jesus' teaching is really incredibly helpful. Shocker, right? The passage that we're going to be looking at today is some of the most famous passages in the Bible. In fact, if this is your first time at church, maybe church is not your thing, the Bible isn't your thing, here's one of the things that you're going to realize is there's going to be two or three phrases that we're going to be looking at today that you're going to be shocked by saying, I've heard that, but you've never read your Bible, you've never went to church, and you're going to say, ah, I've heard that before because there's some of Jesus' teaching and some of his principles that really have trickled down into our culture. So um, even though this is some of the most widely and most familiar passages that we're going to read of Jesus' life, let me just say that it's going to be extremely difficult to follow. If you're like me, you've read these verses in the past. Some of you, you've posted them on your Facebook wall and, and, and you think, oh, that's cute. But if you really tried to apply them, this is going to be what you're thinking. That's idealistic. That's naive. People who don't have any good book smarts or world sense, they are, I mean, they're going to be the ones that are going to try this. This is idiotic. It's too idealistic. If you live that way, then you're going to get taken advantage of. If you live that way, then who's going to look out for you? How are you going to get yours? But in order for us to really understand Jesus' words today, it's going to be helpful to understand the context, all right? You always want to look at the context of the text. So what Jesus is going to do is he's going to look back and he's going to quote some Old Testament principles, some Old Testament scripture. He's going to say, hey, this is what the Old Testament says. He's actually even going to quote some, some traditions of that day of the Pharisees, they were kind of like the seminary profs who had it all together and their stuff didn't stink and they're just great, right? He's going to quote some of them. You've heard it said, you've heard it said, you've heard it said. So Jesus, excuse me, is going to engage the Old Testament, but he's also going to engage their traditions. The passage we're going to look at today is Jesus' favorite sermon, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, again, I've been where he actually did this sermon, and it's not really a mount. In fact, if it was done in Tennessee, it would be the Sermon on the Holler, right? Sermon on the Hill, because it's not really a mountain. <clears throat> it's just gently flowing slope that goes into the Sea of Galilee. Now, before we dig into this passage this morning, let me say one more thing. How many of you have heard people say that the reason... They struggle with God and Christianity is because the God of the New Testament is so different than the God of the Old Testament. Let me see your hands. All right? Anyone? All right? A few people. All right? In fact, this is what some people who push back against Christianity is this, is the God of the New Testament, he's a kind God. He's a God of love. And the God of the Old Testament, he's kind of a ticked off God. He's a mad God. All right? And one of the things that we're going to be looking at Jesus, if Jesus was in our midst today as he's teaching this sermon, he's going to, you're going to hear him say, you know what, that's not true at all. That's not true at all. 
In fact, the verses we're reading in Matthew chapter 5, he says just a few verses earlier, he addressed this. In fact, he said this. Some of you are going to think that I've come, I've come to do away with the Old Testament, to do away with the law, but not at all. In fact, I'm not going to take a dot off the smallest I or uncross the smallest T. I haven't come to do away with the Old Testament. I have come to fulfill and accomplish the Old Testament. So what is Jesus saying here is this. You thought it meant this, but I'm going to tell you, here was the original intent. Here was actually what God meant. And then I want you to structure your life around it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, let's dive in. Here's what it says. Jesus starts saying this. You have heard the what? The law that says, and this is a reference to what we just talked about. Jesus is saying, I'm going to quote some stuff. I'm going to quote some of the Old Testament. I'm going to actually quote some traditions. And then I, we're going to look at what, what the original tent was. All right. You have heard it said, the law says, the punishment must match the injury. And then here's a direct quote from the Old Testament. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, if you've never read the Bible, you've heard an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. It, it's made its way into our culture. When they hear that phrase, most people think it's talking about revenge. It's the bumper sticker that says, I don't get even, I get ahead. Right? Or it's some of your signs that when people come to your back door, I don't call 911. Right? Right? That's what that whole idea comes from. It's revenge. It, or an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth if you're a hockey player. Right? But really, it has nothing to do with revenge. It really doesn't. Jesus is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. you're forgetting uh, why God gave you this law. You see, the reason why God gave that phrase in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, it wasn't about revenge. You see, prior to introducing God's law, it it was your money and your authority that determined your own justice. Let me give you an example. In, in that culture, if you were poor and you accidentally took out the eye of a rich person, right? Maybe your donkey uh, bucked something and, and put out an eye of a rich person. You were in huge trouble because there wasn't any law at the time. The rich could do whatever they wanted because they had the power, they had the money, they had the authority. The powerful did what they wanted, if you took out my eye, then I'm going to take both of your eyes, or I'm going to take your kids. I'm going to take your wife as a concubine. I may even kill you. So there wasn't any limits to it. So the rich and powerful were in authority, and they could do whatever they wanted to because there was no law. So God introduced this law, this principle, and here was the principle, that there would be limits to punishment. It doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter how powerful you are. If you lose an eye, you only get an eye back. If you lose a tooth, you only get a tooth back. You can't kill. You can't maim. The remedy has to be proportionate to the offense, regardless of who you are and how much money you have. Now, in Jesus' day, it, was, it wasn't really about gouging out eyes. You know, nobody was going, here's a dull spoon. Let me get your eye. That's not what it's talking about. It, it really had been reduced to compensation which is similar to the laws in our day. I mean, think about it. If you have insurance and someone goes into your house and takes something, all right, your insurance is going to give you so much, right? I mean, they can't take, you know, something of yours that's maybe only worth 100 bucks, and you're going to expect them to give them, they're going to give you $1,000. That's just not how it works, right? If you have a car 
and you have insurance on the car, if you wreck the car, what's the insurance going to give you? Not much, right? It's just not, right? Because of depreciation. They're not going to give you a Mercedes Benz if you wreck your Ford Fiat. It ain't just, well, Fiat, that's, that's, I like Fiat, so let's just take that off the table. Anyway, you know what I'm saying. So the, the, the compensation, it's all about compensation. But listen to what Jesus says in verse 39. He says this, but I say, so Jesus is saying you can go back and read Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Jesus says you need to remember the original intent of the law because it all became about me, myself, and I looking out for number one. But I say do not resist an evil person. <clears throat> if someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Now, some of you, if you've never been in the church before, you've heard that right? In fact, you've heard this, it's kind of come down in this euphemism, turn the other cheek. How many of y'all ever heard that? All right, some of y'all. So, all right, wake up. This is where it comes from, turn the other cheek. Now, think about it. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, why did Jesus say the right cheek? Well, in that culture, that was a, really an unbelievable disgrace. Most people were right-handed, so if someone hits you on the right cheek, what does that do? What, what are you doing to them? Backhand, that's exactly right, right? How many of y'all ever been backhanded? How many of y'all ever been backhanded by mama? <laughs> you and me both. My mom's in here, all right? So I can say that because there you go. I remember growing up in church as a little wee one, you know, um, uh, I mean, <laughs> if I ever got in trouble, you know, she could get you, right? So, so anyway, but uh, in that culture, in that day, if you were to slap an adult like that, back, back slap somebody, it was a huge disgrace. There was a lot of shame in that. The biggest cultural thing that we have now is don't hit below the belt, or if you're, you know, Mike Tyson, you know, don't bite somebody's ear. You know? Anyway, Matthew 540, if you are sued in court... And your what? Shirt is taken from you. What are you supposed to give? Your coat, too. Now, again, let's go back and look at the context of this. The New Living Translation, the people who did this, have kind of contemporized this because nobody really wears what they originally wore. Let me tell you what they originally wore. They wore these tunics or togas. How many of y'all were Greek and never went to a toga party? Got crazy, right? I'm just saying, we're going to leave that for another day, right? Anyway, but in that context, right, you and I have shirts. How many of y'all have more than one shirt in your closet? Right? Really? Thank you. All right, I'm going to go. <laughs> All right, all of us have more than one set of clothes. In fact, some of you, you have piles of shirts that are in bags right now waiting to go to the Salvation Army because we have tons of shirts. Well, let me tell you, in that culture, in that day, they just didn't have tons of clothes. In fact, if you were poor or middle class, you only had one set of clothes. And it wasn't a shirt or a coat. It was a tunic or a robe. And underneath that tunic or robe, there was your undergarment. And in that culture, if you owed someone money, they took you to court and you lost because you didn't have a lot of resources at your, or assets at your disposal. One, one of the things they could do is they could actually take your tunic, because tunics were valuable. In fact, think about this way. When Jesus was crucified, you remember what the Roman soldiers did? They gambled for his robe. Why? Because there was money to be made there. So listen to this. This is what it says literally. If you are sued in court and your robe is taken from you, then give them your undergarment too. Time out, Jesus. That's going to leave 
you naked? And Jesus says, yep, it will. I mean, this is radical stuff. As Jesus is teaching this, people's jaws are dropping. This isn't like a little teachings that your grandmother kind of cro- crocheted and put up on the wall. That's not what he's talking about here. Isn't that so sweet? No, the people in that day were thinking, what? Seriously? I mean, you, you don't do that. You don't, take, you don't get taken advantage of because I have to take care of me. You don't sit in court naked, Jesus. Nobody lives like that. If I don't stand up for number one, then who is going to stand up for me, Jesus? I mean, I'm going to get taken advantage of. What is this going to look like? Who is going to help me? What about me? Keep on reading. Verse 41. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, you are to carry it how many? Two miles. Now, again, let's give some context here. Where they are living is in Israel. They're an occupied nation. They are being ruled over by a bunch of bullies, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is hated. And if you're Jewish, you despise the Romans. Rome is the superpower. They're in control of most of the known world at that time, of Africa and the Mediterranean and Europe. Rome was despised. And if you were a devout God follower in Jesus' day and you believed that God hated Rome even more than you did, you believe that even touching a Roman citizen, you were made dirty and you were made unclean. And if you were a Jew, expecting the becoming of the Messiah, the rescuer of the Old Testament promises, their king, if you're expecting the coming of the Messiah, then you are expecting the Messiah would come and overthrow the Roman government and the Roman occupying force. This is what they believed about Messiah, and this is why they were so disappointed with Jesus. With Jesus, when he finally says, you know, I am the Messiah, I am he. And they're like, really? And you're telling us that if a Roman soldier asks us to carry something for a mile, you're going to asking us to do it too? So everybody was criticizing Jesus. In fact, you've heard this euphemism, we are to go the extra mile. Exactly right. Let me show you some archaeological stuff from Israel. These are actually Roman mile markers, and they're all over the ancient Roman land. I've seen them, all right? And keep on going. Here's another one. In every mile, they would post these Roman mile markers. And here's the thing they would do. Is just like today, if a policeman, if they needed your car, they could tell you to get out of your car, and they're going to get into your car, and, you know, it's called, you know, they uh, impress it, all right? So they can take it from you for a season. And that's exactly what the Roman soldiers would do. They would just find people and say, you know what, my back's heavy, my rucksack is a little heavy, so, hey, what are you, you ain't doing nothing. You're going to carry my pack one mile. And it was law. I mean, you had to. It didn't matter if you were late, going to dinner, nothing. You had to drop everything that you did, And you had to go that mile. And Jesus is saying, I just don't want you to go a mile. I want you to go the extra mile. That's where we get that expression. So let's go back to the beginning of this message and take a fresh look at what the Bible teaches about God helps those who help themselves. You see, Jesus' teaching is the exact opposite. Jesus is challenging us. Jesus is teaching, um, it, it, it really leaves us feeling naked and taken advantage of and vulnerable. It leaves us asking the question, who is going to have my back, Jesus? Uh, who, who is going to look after me? It leaves us asking the question, how involved do you get? 
How much do you give away? Do I really want to live like that? And Jesus answers that question in verse 42. He says this, give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. And at this point, the average person, even if you're the average devout follower of God, you're like, I don't think I want to hear this. I think Jesus' most listened to words are the words that we do the least. Because they challenge us. Now let's think about the people that you admire, just for a sec. Just put all of this aside. Think about the people that you admire. The people that do what Jesus is asking for us to do. We admire them, don't we? Think about the people who have impacted your life in huge, amazing ways. They're more like Jesus' teaching and less about a me monster. In fact, look at the people that we write about in our history books, that we give Nobel Peace Prizes to, people like Martin Luther King Jr., who took Jesus' words that were radical, and he defeated racism in the South. And people are still talking about him, even though he was killed back in 68. Or, or think of Mahatma Gandhi, who was able to overthrow Britain in India, Britain's oppression. I mean, people are still talking about Gandhi and his, and his movement of nonviolence. Think about Mother Teresa. I mean, here is a lady who gave everything, and it, it, I mean, she considered nothing her own. She, and she, wasn't, she was the exact opposite of a me monster. It, it was all about you and serving others' needs. Those are the people that we admire, right? Not the people who are selfish, me, 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 my, my, my. But think about it, we're all me monsters, aren't we? Jesus could have just stopped right here and just gave us a list of to-dos. But he continues by giving us the why. And I'm so glad he did. Because some of you, you're like, really? This is stupid. This is naive. This isn't practical. And if I do this, then I'm going to get taken advantage of. Well, let me tell you. Jesus is saying, you might. But here really is the reason why you should do this. Here's the reason why he taught this. You want to know why you shouldn't look out for number one? You want to know why you shouldn't worry about what you get and what you don't get? Here's the why. And here's the why of what is under the Old Testament. Here is the why of what Jesus teaches because there's a reason why. And it almost makes not being a me monster looking out for number one tolerable. Because let me tell you this. If you're stuck in a marriage and you don't know what to do, and, and how you should, you should totally pay attention to this teaching. If you're in a relationship with a spouse that is turned difficult, that's more adversarial right now, if you're not getting along with him or her, and you're sleeping with the enemy, listen up. If you're in a relationship, a friendship, that doesn't seem to be going anywhere, and you don't know how to make it better, you need to pay attention to this why. If you're, if you're having difficulty at work, and your boss is just always on you, and things have turned difficult, and you don't know how to make it better, then listen up. Because if you don't know how to navigate all the stuff that's log jam that you're having with your kids, all the, the enemies that you're struggling with, let me tell you, I'm going to share something right now that's going to transform your relationships if you, stop, if you stop becoming and being a me monster. Here's what it says, another way to live. Verse 43, Jesus gives us the why. And he says this, you have heard the law that says, love your what? 
neighbor and hate your enemy, all right? Everybody's like, yeah, we've heard that. In fact, those quotes are straight from the Old Testament, all right? Totally understand that. Straight from the Bible. How many of y'all having difficulty loving neighbors? Anyone? Hopefully they're not here, so you can raise your hand, all right, cool. You know, it's easy to love your neighbors when you have great neighbors. When you have neighbors who has a yard like Sanford and Son, right? Boom, 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 right? You know what I'm saying? It's a little bit more difficult. It is. That's what he says. But Jesus says, but I say, love your enemies. Do you know what love your neighbor was supposed to mean initially? Love everybody. Your enemies, your friends, your family, everybody. So Jesus is wanting to make this teaching clear that the intention of neighbor was to love everybody. So Jesus says, I am going to rephrase it differently. It's not a new teaching. It's just what, it was the first one that was really God already put in there. But you lost the intent. But I say, love your enemies. I'm going to keep on reading. And pray for those who persecute you. Now, this is a paradigm shift. Because in our culture, we have equated love with emotion. We think, if I, if I turn the other cheek, then I'm supposed to have these warm, fuzzy feelings, you know, kind of in the pit of my stomach. That isn't love. That's gas. Right? Love is not an emotion. Emotions come. Emotions go. Love is an action. Love is an activity. Love is a verb. Love operates whether you feel something or whether you don't feel something. Love isn't a box of chocolates. Right? It isn't. I mean, when you try to build a marriage on emotion, it's only going to last for a season. Why? It's the, it's the reason why so many marriages fail, because you stay married long enough. Eventually, if you stay married long enough, eventually your spouse will become your enemy. And you're going to argue. You will have a disagreement. You're going to be disappointed. You, and you think, you know what? You're going to, I wish I was happy. And you're going to believe a lie like, God wants me to be happy. And because I'm not happy now in my marriage, then I'm going to get out of my marriage because God wants me to be happy. There's a Greek word for that. It's called bunk. That's another one that's not in the Bible. God doesn't want you to be happy. In fact, think about this. Was Jesus happy when he went to the cross? <laughs> Woo, this is awesome. Woo, let's do it again. Right? I missed that in the Passion of the Christ. I don't know. No, but let me tell you, there is a joy. There is a joy when you do the right thing for the right reasons, you will experience a joy. In fact, this is in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says this, through the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising our shame. Joy is different than happiness. Happiness comes from happenstance, which means the things around you makes you happy. You can have things around you that's not making you happy and still find joy inside. Do you know what Martin Luther King Jr. said about this? I love this. The best way to transform your enemy into a friend is by loving him or her. You see, love isn't just emotional. Sometimes love and emotions can coexist. It's in those rare moments we get married, right? However... In fact, we're going to be talking about next week. What do you do with feelings? What, and we're going to talk about this whole idea that the closer I get to God, the more I'll feel him. I'm just going to give you a heads up. That's a lie. Right? We're going to talk about that next week. Love is not a warm, fuzzy feeling. You choose to love your enemies, and you choose to pray for those who persecute you. And you know what? Do you know it's impossible to hate somebody you're praying for? It is. Some, some people could stay an enemy a long time in your head when you don't pray for them. But when you start praying for somebody, guess
guess who changes? You do. You can't stay stuck in the same place. Some of you are stuck in your marriages. Well, choose to love him, but you don't know him. Okay? You do. Choose to love him. And if you do choose to love him, you pray for him, your heart will change. You're going to get unstuck in that relationship. I'm going to tell you, it's just going to be hard. Let me explain how it worked out in my life. Um, And some of you have heard this. But my wife and I, in our previous church experience in the Midwest, we had a really bad experience at a church. It was a family-run church. And uh, long story short, uh, there was this one guy at this church who I thought you know, we were on the same team, and we were good friends, and I would sit in his combine, and we would kind of hang out, and it was just, I thought we were playing on the same team until I realized he was really playing on his own team, and he really hurt my family, spread some lies and gossip about me. His name was Roddy, and uh, I, and I remember as we were leaving Iowa, I literally, I was wearing flip-flops. I know that shocked some of you, right? So I bend down, we go to the state line, and I go like this. Shaking the dust off my flip-flops. I'm like, I ain't never coming back to this place again. By the way, next month I'm going back to Iowa. It'll be fun. Don't ever say never to God. Never say never, all right? Just give you a heads up. Going down there to do a youth camp. But anyway, um, so, and I remember just leaving, and my wife and I, we were struggling. We moved back to Tennessee, and it was before we started one church, and uh, we were in the process of getting everything done so that we could start one church, and Kim and I ended up going to counseling, and we were trying. I just I didn't want to be bitter, and I didn't want to just live in this anger. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. When somebody's hurt you so deeply, you know you got this choice. What do you do with your anger? What do you do? You allow bitterness to really grow in there. And I'll tell you, through a lot of counseling and by God's grace, I started praying for this guy. And 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 I. You know, I, I would think about it every day, and I was like, okay, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying. I, God, I just pray that you would help him and change his heart and bless him. And, and, and I tell you, I still was struggling with anger and anger. And, and so, but eventually, slowly, over not just days, not just months, but years, God was able to, for me to get over this. And, and I'm so grateful for that. Until one day, one church was already started. I remember it was a Tuesday morning. Uh, my phone starts blowing up with Iowa numbers. And I'm like, what is that? And like, I'm hitting ignore, you know, ignore. After about the sixth or seventh one, I'm like, I can't ignore it anymore, right? Something's happening. So I answer, hey, what's going on? And uh, this person, a good friend of mine, called up and says, hey, have you heard about Roddy? Heard what about Roddy? He says, he was busted in a prostitution sting in Des Moines. He says, his, his mess caught up with him. Isn't that awesome? And I remember thinking, it's not awesome. I started crying. Because I didn't want that church to be hurt any more than it had been. And I, I say this by saying that I'm not perfect. I'm not. But God had finally done, it took him years. But it finally, he did a work in my heart. And I remember hanging up the phone and I prayed for Roddy. And I called him up on his cell phone. And I said, listen. I know we're probably not on talking terms, speaking terms, but I just want to let you know that I'm praying for you and I'm here for you and your family. And he was like, there was just silence. You know what? That's okay. And I remember hanging up the phone and I thought about this verse. This is Proverbs 24, 17 says this. Don't rejoice when your enemies fall. Don't be happy when they stumble. You see, my prayers hadn't changed Roddy. My prayers had changed me. 
When you pray for someone, you don't get stuck in your anger. You don't get stuck in your bitterness and hatred. You, your head and your heart start to soften. And one day you're going to be surprised that your enemies aren't your enemies anymore. The last two verses. Verse 47. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different than anyone else? Even the pagans do that. But you are to be what? Perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Time out, Jesus. Perfect? <laughs> I know me a little too well. I don't think I'm ever really going to achieve perfection. Well, let me tell you, that Greek word for perfection used here means complete. It means whole. It means fulfilled. Jesus used that same word when he said earlier, I came to fulfill the law, to complete the law. Do you want to know what's missing in your life? Do you want to know what's missing in your marriage? Do you know what is not complete, why you're stuck? Stuck in a loveless marriage, stuck in a bad relationship, stuck in an awful friendship, stuck in a job, because you've been making yourself number one. You have been feeding the me monster. So as we close, I want to challenge you. And I want you to use your imaginations just for a sec. I want you to imagine the impact this could have on your closest relationship. Imagine the spouse that you have hated now that you're in love again because prayer turns enemies into friends. The boss who backstabbed you, you can now have a relationship with him or her again because your love has transformed an enemy into a friend. The guy who walked out the door on you, a dad who betrayed you or a mom who left you, you can now have a relationship with them and he or she can be your friend. Not because they even took ownership and said they're sorry, but because something has changed in your heart, in your life. So as we close, it's not that God helps those who help themselves. God will come alongside you to help others. Here's our big idea today. Helping others is actually the best way to help yourself. Helping others is actually the best way to helping yourself. Your life is actually most complete, not when you help yourself, not when you look out for number one, not when you feed the me monster. Your life is the most fulfilled, the most complete when you help others. That will complete a part of you that is missing. If you want to bring hope in your marriage, that's it. If you want to bring hope, in your relationships, that's it. Are you a me monster? Is it all about you? I pray that all of us in here today, but specifically the guys, those dads, if we want to live a life that our children will want to be like us, it's not going to be because you bring home the biggest, fattest paycheck or you have more bars on your chest. It's going to be because you put others first. You put God first. Those are the people that we admire. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you so much, God, that we can just be able to come. And Lord, that we can debunk some of the ideas that, that many of us have just grown up with that really just aren't biblical. And Lord, of all the ones we've looked at, this is probably the biggest one. That just, the Bible screams that this isn't it. That you are to give. That we're to make other people the focus. 
We are to serve other people. So God, I pray that our community would be changed because of the love of Jesus Christ that's in us. Lord, that we would make a difference and an impact in this community of Clarksville, Fort Campbell. God, I pray, Lord, that you would make a difference and an impact in our marriages because we stop, we're stopping looking out for our rights. We're not worried about that anymore. But God, we're serving and we're loving. And yeah, we may get taken advantage of, Jesus. But Lord, you were. You were taken advantage of. And it was because you were taken advantage of that you made a difference in this life. In this life and in eternity. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.